Ladies and gentlemen, as you know, we have something special down here at Birdland this evening. A recording. Recording. I was raised Italian Catholic. I was Italian first and a Catholic second. And while my family's weekly worship took place every Sunday morning, as you might expect, mine happened just after, when my nono, my, my grandfather, would take me to his old friend's pizza place. This pizza place, this quiet, out-of-the-way place, was a cathedral in its own right. The first thing I remember hitting me was this just incensed perfume of simmering garlic and roasted tomatoes. The lighting in this place was dim, reverent. As my eyes adjusted to what little crept through the colored glass lampshades, I'd trace around and lock eyes with our family table and make a beeline for those red vinyl pews. The owner himself would always take our order, in part to catch up with the day's homily. They'd slip in and out of Italian as they traded philosophies of scripture, and I would wait, hands folded, for my daily bread, so to speak. We'll do the usual, a large pepperoni. My no-no and I could eat. The owner would nod, step behind the register into the tabernacle of a wood fire oven, and he would gracefully pluck a golden brown disc, shimmering from fat, steam rising from the surface, and walk it over to our table. And so we'd eat, in quiet reverence, or at least we were too busy eating to say anything. <laughs> and eating this pizza took full concentration. The chewy risen crust melted with the long strings of mozzarella to so thoroughly engage your jaw that we couldn't have spoken a word if we wanted. My grandfather was a big guy, but I was young. I'd always end up putting away a bit more than him. And although lunch would always take the better part of an hour, it always seemed to slip right by. I guess I kind of assumed that this must have been how my family felt about their religious experiences. Ordinarily, lunch would be followed by dessert, usually some sort of baked good and espresso while my nono sat with the owner and reminisced about their mutual heritage. And as this particular lunch drew to a close, I caught a glimpse of a cook slicing thick wedges of tiramisu, only to have my hopes dashed by my grandfather. Not today, we got an errand to run. See, I was raised Catholic second and since there were no Italian schools in my hometown, I attended Catholic school throughout elementary. Tomorrow was the first day of class, and I still needed my uniforms. 
So we packed up, jumped into his car, and took off for the mall. The details following that lunch were somewhat hazy. Maybe it was the fact that clothes shopping was far from the spiritual experience food was for me. Or maybe it was just the food coma. Either way, hardly surprising. And in either case, I absentmindedly ambled toward the stack of blue button-up shirts and slacks, only to have my grandfather redirect me toward a section I'd never really noticed before. Husky. For better or worse, I was different. And no one, not even this otherwise impartial mall clothing store, would let me forget it. Virgie Tovar is a writer, researcher, and activist in the often misunderstood field of fat studies. Now, fat studies is a sociological field which studies how culture affects and is affected by diet, obesity, mental health, and gender norms. In Western cultures, this work often wrestles with how our strong predilection for thinness negatively impacts our individuality, our health, and our gender expression. Interestingly, in non-Western cultures, the needle is often flipped, and a preference for fat can lead to highly similar damages. But Virgie's path was far from purely academic. For nearly 20 years, she wrestled personally with being othered for her weight. And in that time, the way she approached her own weight has changed pretty drastically. And those hard-won lessons are are firmly planted in her activist worldview. Most children have a relationship to their body that is driven by curiosity. before I was five, I had this intuitively positive relationship to my body, which I mean, most children have. Children learn shame. And I was fat even as a baby, right? So I was like, I was always a fat person. When I was four years old, I found my fatness to be this incredibly interesting thing that like brought me so much pleasure. One of my favorite stories to tell is that, you know, I used to love jiggling. We would come home from running errands and then, um, you know, I would take off all my clothes and I would like jiggle and I would kind of put on this like jiggling show for my grandma. And I remember like the chemical release of like the delight of doing that. I can remember what it felt like to be somebody who found like the undulations of my body to be super fascinating. And in fact, like very pleasurable in the way that like rolling around in the grass on like a sunny day or the like the minute that you get into the ocean on a hot day, it's like that sense of kind of relief and delight. Um, and that's 
what that was the that was the intuitive and the the prime of the original relationship I had to my body. And I think that's what made, I mean, fat phobia, like learning fat phobia is painful um, across the board. But I think especially coming after like such a, a beautiful relationship to my body, for it to kind of really be brutally taken from me is kind of how I really remember it happening, you know? with my grandmother cooked every meal and she's a Mexican immigrant. Every meal, there was like tortillas, there was had beans. So I grew up eating my grandmother's really incredibly delicious food. And then as I got older and began to diet, um, it was that very food that I began to become very resentful of because it was so good. And I sort of found some diaries from when I was like eight years old. And in the diaries, I'm writing about how angry I am my grandmother for like tempting me with this food that she would make. Something like really delicious, right? Tamales, right? Like, like and there, you know, she put like mole sauce on them. And it was, it was like, how can you resist that? When you're restricting, food takes on kind of these mystical proportions and you begin to anthropomorphize food. I mean, I, I think that anybody who's, who's in restriction mode or diet, dieting can like understand that um, food food can talk to you, right? Like, <laughs> so I mean, I remember, you know, just this sense that like her food and her cooking was this tantalizing thing. And if I gave into that, temptation that I would be bad um, because that would mean that I, I wasn't dedicating every single waking moment and every resource I had to becoming what everyone said I was supposed to be, which was a thin person. I really think about all the home-cooked meals that I grew up with that I think really nourished me and then became this symbol of my my wrongdoing. And I think in, in, in that way, my grandmother's like specific lineage of like Mexican mothering became vilified as well. I think I can like safely admit that in adulthood. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you.
when I was restricting, you know, when I was deep in like diet and starvation mode, um, the thing that I really wanted all the time was sweet. I just wanted to have all the desserts, right? But like uh, desserts are the ultimate indulgence. The first thing I think of is tiramisu um because it's like the marriage of like all these different perfect other desserts <laughs> well it's funny i actually have kind of a ridiculous amazing story um that's related to tiramisu it's in the italian family i didn't grow up with sweets so i have this like curiosity it kind of had that forbidden fruit feeling even before I was aware of like fat phobia and dieting. With dieting, like I think about the, there's a food cemetery in my mind of like all the food that I missed out on because I was dieting. During like my restriction period, which went on for like almost 20 years, there was this one moment, one of those lows in the history of my food, the biggest headstone, like the mausoleum in my food cemetery is dedicated to the following story that I'm about to tell you. So I ended up spending a third of my freshman year in Italy. And at the time I was restricting. And so I had what many dieters have, what they would call a fantasy, what in reality is a completely unrealistic nightmare. I have this like fantasy that, oh my God, I'm going somewhere far away. This is the opportunity to return transformed. The transformation narrative is so, so intoxicating to women. I think to people in general, like particularly women, because we're just taught that we're not good enough ever. And so it's just, like the idea of being another person um, is just so appealing to us. I was like, oh my God, I'm gonna come back and I'm gonna be thin. And then after I come back on the airplane and then I'm gonna walk down the little runway from customs my family's going to be there and I'm going to see them and I'm going to be like a cosmopolitan Italian woman who like wears a scarf and these amazing like Gucci sunglasses and I'm going to walk past them and they're like going to be like where is she where's Virgie and I'm going to turn around and be like it's me I'm thin you didn't recognize me because I'm not fat anymore and it was like the whole narrative had played out in my head it was like a like an 18 year old woman Now, next step, methodology, right? <laughs> I was like, how are we gonna get these, how are we gonna get these outcomes? The truth is, right, um, yeah, you cannot uh, undergo an extraordinary transformation like that in 10 weeks um, without extreme measures, okay? So that was my thought. I was like, it would be extremely difficult for someone, but um, I'm a special snowflake, and so I can defeat like physics, the biology, genealogy, all the things, right? 
I go to Italy and I like realize and I decide that the method that's going to actually make this fantasy, you know, executable is that I have to eat nothing, right? Like I have to literally start. So for the second time in my life, after being 11 years old and starving myself for the first time for a short period, for like three months, um, I go back into it as an 18 year old and, you know, full on just refuse to eat anything except like a couple of spoonful of food a day. I was going to school, I was going to university, learning Italian, learning about like history and culture. And one of the, one of our like field trips that we had to do was everyone had to go to Naples for Easter. There is a surprise, right? The surprise is that they're serving us a 12 course Italian dinner. And I did like, and as a person on a diet, like that news would just strike any, would fill anyone's heart with delight if they weren't like in this really fucked up headspace. And so, but to my ears, it was literally like someone saying like, we have 18 puppies and you're going to have to watch them get skinned alive, right? Like it was like so bad. And I, yeah. And I was like, oh my God, this is the worst thing ever. I hate this. I mean, you can imagine like these incredible like homemade dishes that are like have heavy cream and they have homemade pasta and like fresh seafood. And it's just, like thing, it's, I don't know, it's like the worst. It's like, it's like thing after thing after delicious thing. And I'm just eating one spoonful of each dish. And then like, and they have like three dessert courses and I just like ran out the minute they started serving the dessert and like ran to bed and like hid under the blankets, right? Like I was just so horrified. That is like the mausoleum in the food cemetery. Like that 12 course, like Neapolitan fucking feast that like I lost to diet culture, like will always be my biggest grudge. The end. <laughs> Because I was so convinced for years and years and years that like food was the enemy, right? Like if I could just master my relationship to food and like what human can master the incredible, like the incredible feelings and that, that food brings up. Essentially, my relationship to food began to heal when I began to stop dieting and began to become fat positive. I will say there was another factor. Um, I started dating someone who is fat positive. You know, we met in kind of this totally bizarre, really like uncanny way. I used to have um, a radio show and he heard the show one time and then began like a wild search for who I was. This was before social media, right? Like, so very difficult to find somebody um, just from hearing them one time on a radio show. (laughs) 
yeah and so it took him a while but he found me and he was you know anyway we started um a relationship and it's wild right because he is like a thin conventionally attractive man um and he just sort of saw through all of the cultural messaging around like beauty and body size he began to sort of tell me that I was perfect and beautiful and my body size was like something that was really special and an asset to who I was as a person. And that, you know, I was allowed to eat whatever I wanted and that like no man or no person should tell me what my body looks like. He would really um, create like this really safe space where I could explore the desires for particular quote-unquote like naughty or sinful foods that I was very afraid of. Right? Like cheese. Right? He was like, oh, did you, like, did you, you know, like we'd be cooking and he'd be like, oh, you know, did you want to did you want some cheese, right? And then, and, and I, you know, I'd panic, right? Because it's like cheese is like a gateway drug, right? <laughs> it's like, what sex? Am I going to be eating cake? Am I just going to eat the whole refrigerator? You know, and he would kind of just like gently coax me into sort of putting some cheese and stuff. And then all of a sudden we'd be eating like, you know, mac and cheese and seven cheeses in it or whatever. And it was like, it was like this incredibly liberatory experience to be able to be with somebody who I was dating. And he was kind of encouraging me to really pursue my desire for these particular foods. And then in the midst of all, like, in, you know, about halfway through that relationship, I start researching um, fat women. But because like fat studies at the time was so small, it was also very, very, very connected to fat activism as like a, as a political movement, which was also very small and insular and really rad and, and beautiful. Uh, my research kind of took me down that rabbit hole and I began to meet um, amazing fat babes who were just refusing to diet and wearing amazing outfits and were just like, this is all patriarchy, girl. I never thought that, you know, a fat woman could like wear a bathing suit without shame and eat cake and not feel sorry about it. I just didn't, it just had never occurred to me that I could do that. They showed me that I had access to that at my current size. So and so it was kind of the like the concomitant experiences of dating a fat positive person for the first time and meeting um, these incredible radical sort of fat queer feminists. Like dieting is an incredibly powerful tool of sexism. Fat phobia and dieting map onto sexism really precisely, really perfectly, um, because women are taught in our culture that um, that 
we like not only are we second class citizens, but that we have to barter our body to get things like love, respect um, and the things that matter to us versus the idea that each every single human is valuable and wonderful and perfect and every single person has something to offer the planet um women are taught that we if we can if we can create a body that is um evident as socially controlled then we can be not threatening enough to get the stuff that we want um which is complete horseshit <laughs> Um, so a, a lot of the times women think they have a problem with food, right? And then you kind of like interrogate a little bit more and you actually discover they have a problem with fatness, right? They don't want to be fat, right? Because they've been taught that that's like the worst thing they can be um, because fat people get treated really poorly and they see it. And then we get a little bit deeper and I'm like, well, what do you like, what, what's beyond fat phobia, right? Like let's pull the, the veil past that, right? And like, what else is going on? And what you really get into is like the suppurating underbelly of racism, sexism, and classism. <laughs> and I think the truth is right, like for me, like when I, you know, being enmeshed in like shame and guilt, right? And being like completely cowed by it for years. It just sort of, I mean, it takes away. And I mean, you know, it was dieting for me. It's different things for different people, right? Like I think there are many men who find that the expectations of masculinity have stolen the magic and joy of life from them um, or you know for, for like people of color that racism has done that dieting was my version of that task that our culture is so good at giving each one of us And I think to kind of break that down, make it a little more specific to the work that I do, I began to learn more and more that every single woman I talked to who was a slave to dieting, that when she said, I want to be thin, she meant, I want to be loved, I want to be seen, I want to be successful, and I want to be free. They had internalized the idea that diet culture and compliance were the broker for those pursuits. I think everyone, honestly, is um, really seeking freedom and like the permission to return to that childlike state of wonder and acceptance. When I was younger and saw that women living fearless lives, I think when my students, the people I work with, see me living loudly and, you know, going, like traveling and wearing, you know, ridiculous outfits that I love and all these things, um, I think that it empowers them to see that like somebody who is fat and who's maybe their same size um, actually doesn't have to live, um, like put their life on hold and live this quiet life until someday they lose enough weight to deserve to exist because a lot of times that day never comes.
I went in thinking that I was going to learn about food and about gender, and I ended up learning something about life and about humans. Course Ground is a show about the ways food impacts our lives. This episode's guest was Virgie Tovar, whose work, and especially her new book, You Have the Right to Remain Fat, can be found at virgietovar.com. V-I-R-G-I-E-T-O-V-A-R.com. If you don't want to miss the next episode, subscribe to the podcast using the app of your choice. If you don't want to miss anything, be sure to follow us at Course Ground Pod on Twitter. So let's talk a little bit about the tiramisu that we never got. Tiramisu is indeed the marriage of all of these perfect other desserts. And it can really be broken down into three parts. There's a thick, sweet custard, a light, fluffy meringue, and espresso-soaked ladyfinger cookies. So let's take these one at a time, shall we? We'll start with the custard. So only two ingredients are technically necessary for a custard, eggs and dairy. Now the dairy in our tiramisu is mascarpone, which you may know by its common mispronunciation, mascarpone. Mascarpone is a traditional Italian cream cheese from a region of Italy just south of Milan. In fact, mascarpone is subject to the same geographical production restrictions as champagne, Vidalia onions, and even scotch. So this is all we technically need for our custard, but since we're not making a quiche here, we'll want to add some sugar. Combine four egg yolks, 12 ounces of our mascarpone cheese, and half a cup of sugar. Beat this with a hand mixer until it's thick and ribby. All right, dessert number one down, and we move on to number two, the meringue. Now, meringue is basically just an egg white foam, and egg whites are basically protein and water. Now, as you thrash this stuff, the proteins are going to unfurl and enmesh themselves into a suitable trellis for trapping water and, in our case, sugar. You're going to start by cleaning off the mixer, as egg yolks can prevent your whites from ever whipping into a foam, and then beat the four egg whites alone in a bowl. When they just start to become opaque, sprinkle in a quarter cup of sugar. Continue whipping these until, when you pull the mixer out, the whites stand up straight and stiff on the beaters 
otherwise known as stiff peaks. Now we bring the custard and the meringue together. I find that splitting the meringue into thirds and folding it in, being more and more gentle with each addition, leaves you with the lightest possible end result. And that result is going to be a light and creamy froth that's almost pudding-like in texture. Perfect for sandwiching between our ladyfinger cookies. Ladyfingers, or by their original Italian name, uh, Saviardi, are a dry, egg-based sponge cookie that form the backbone in many layered desserts like trifles or tiramisu. So now we've got all of the elements ready for building the final dish. We've got our custard and foam mixture, and we've got our ladyfingers and espresso. We're gonna take the custard and foam mixture, we're gonna spread a layer out thin in a baking dish. Then, one by one, we're gonna take a ladyfinger, dunk it into espresso, then build it into the pan so we've got a one cookie thick layer right on top of our custard foam mixture. Then just repeat until you've used all seven ounces of ladyfingers. Cover and refrigerate for at least eight hours. That's right, no baking necessary. It really is just the marriage of other ready-made desserts. Right before serving, you're gonna to wanna to dust the top with a fine cocoa powder, preferably one of Italian origin. And then slice, a nice thick slice, and enjoy. I'm Patrick Perini, and this has been Coarse Ground.